0: Buddy, it is Wednesday, September eighteenth, two thousand nineteen, and this is episode I guess sixteen, according to the new counting of the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. I'm your host and chief recovering hypocrite, Dole uh, Jesse Hakenen, And uh, if you w- listen to the preview episode I-, I released two weeks ago today, you may know that I'm in a new rhythm here, where I'm going to try to post a podcast every two weeks on Wednesday, and we'll see if this new rhythm works. And I was. So so, so, so excited about my first guest uh, this week. Uh, Her name is Karen Swallow Pryor, and she is an English professor at Liberty University. And uh, I came across Karen about a year and a half ago online. And one of the first things I was blown away by was her posture uh, toward people that she disagreed with. It was just uh, she's sharp. She's sharp-witted, um, and yet she's not uh, unnecessarily mean. And she's just uh, uh, she's got this great tonal quality about her that really stems in a lot of ways from her research of uh, 18th-century British literature, and that is her field of expertise. But she is uh, very prolific online on social media, especially on Twitter, uh, talking about social issues of the day, um, as well as uh, religious issues and uh, culture issues and things like that. And so I was so excited to have Karen on for the podcast that I jumped in, got a great interview with her that I did not record. And I was just absolutely devastated and embarrassed and so um, I texted her and said, "Hey, is there any chance you'd be willing to re-record?" And she was willing to re-record just a couple days later. And so, Karen, it, it's—I guess—it's true to say that this is not the first podcast that we've done together.
1: It's not even the first time this year or this week. <laughs>
0: Or <laughs> in the last three days. So, what we got, what we're talking about uh, last time when we uh, got on here is the tone in our culture um, that is getting, in, in a sense, combative. And I'm going to start in a different place because something you said last week that nobody else got to hear. Was fascinating to me, and I want to start there because it's got the wheels turning for me over the last week. So this is almost like the second part of a conversation no one will ever hear. Um, but the you, I hope
1: I can be fascinating again. Well,
0: I'm, I'm sure you will because this is in your wheelhouse. <laughs> you are an um, an expert in 18th century literature, um, and one of the comments that you made we're talking about the pendulum swing of of tone in culture was that in in a sense, the 18th century was an example of how there was a really kind of harsh tone in a lot of the culture and a lot of the arguments back and forth. T- talk about that a little bit, because it's got me thinking about the fact that we're not in an, as unusual of a place as I thought we were. Sure.
1: I mean, the 18th century is my period of specialty, so that's kind of where I, I focus. But um, it's certainly not the only place where we can encounter a lot of meanness and satire and um, and not very nice tone um, 18th century was the period of, of a great deal of satire and some of my famous my favorite um, famous writers were some of the meanest writers um, Alexander Pope wrote a, a satirical poem uh, called the Dunciad uh, you know proclaiming you know sort of a contest an olympic type contest where who is going to be the 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 queen or king of the dunces and he 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 invoked a lot of names of real life people writers and thinkers and politicians in the poem and the poem gets kind of bawdy after a while and it's a great example of satire that skewers it's political it's philosophical um and it doesn't pull any punches um and and you know, we can look at other, we can look at periods in church history, um, and also the 18th century. Um, George Whitfield, the poor man, was just mocked mercilessly, often for his, like, his personal appearance, his, um, his speaking style, his face. Um, Samuel Johnson, who is the famous um, lexicographer and critic of the time, uh, had a very pockmarked face, and he was made fun of. Alexander Pope was was mocked for his small stature as the result of, you know, debilitating disease when he was young. So these guys, these guys were really mean. Um, and yet they were also trying to improve society through their satire, through their criticism. Um, and I think even as mean as things get today online, um, they are neither as mean nor as smart as
0: those guys. <laughs> well, well, so you, 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 you put two terms, you kind of conflated two terms there of meanness and satire. Are, are those necessarily linked? Like, so as, as you think about a follower of Christ and we think about our tonal posture to people around us, is it necessary to be mean to be satirical?
1: Uh, That is a really good question. And I was actually using the term mean somewhat ironically because satire actually has, true satire has a very high moral purpose. It mocks vice or folly for the purpose of correction. That's the definition of satire. And if it's not mockery of either vice or folly, you know, either our own sinfulness and wickedness or our foolishness, for the purpose of correction, it's actually not satire. It's you know burlesque or just mockery. Um, satire is always trying to correct some sort of error, some human error. Um, it can do that well or it can do it poorly, but that is by definition what satire does, and that is not mean. Um, one of the things I talk about uh, concerning satire in my book on reading well is how um, how you actually have to love someone in order to care enough to correct them. That is actually what satire does.
0: Um, That's really interesting because if you think about Jesus, there there are some that when you talk about tone in culture, they say, "Well, well, wait a minute, Jesus was incredibly mean To the religious (laughs) folks. I mean, he called them whitewashed tombs uh, full of dead men's bones. They were cups that were clean on the outside, but filled with maggots on the inside. And that statement that you have to actually love someone enough to make a statement like that in a way that cuts in order to point out a... Moral deficiency or a moral inconsistency. I mean, that's what Jesus was saying. Beware, right. you hypocrites, right. you brood of vipers. He's he's trying to point out a moral inconsistency in what they said they believed and how it was actually playing out in their life.
1: Exactly. I mean, I I didn't make this up, and I can't remember the source, but it's something like this: that the opposite of love isn't hate; it's apathy. Right. So if you if you don't care, you don't correct. And um, you know, I, I come to this understanding of satire because of my great love for Jonathan Swift who is another 18th century satirist who just, he's the most brilliant satirist that ever lived. Um, and don't get me started on that. But a lot of his um, his contemporaries and later critics considered him to be a misanthrope because he had such a, uh, a cynical and pessimistic view of mankind. But really, I mean, he was an Anglican clergyman and he, he just felt so deeply and he wanted so much more. I think he was a great lover of humankind. And that's why he he despaired and why he pointed out so many things that needed to be improved because he not only wanted to see those improvements, but he believed we were capable of them.
0: So how do you uh, think about, uh, especially in light of, you know, social media, it almost seems like social media has um, in a sense dumbed down our ability to have appropriately cutting s- satire, because we've got to get it into, what, 288 characters or whatever, um, and, and mm-hmm. it's almost gotten to the point that uh, meanness for the sake of meanness uh, has replaced satire as a cutting critique. It's almost like the posture online is, seems to be negative for the sake of negative. I mean, is there, a, is there any sort of course correction for a follower of Christ in how they think about tone and satire and how they're perceived positively and negatively and why they say the things is, I mean, are you seeing any uh, course correction that's needed in our culture right now? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think this goes back to, you know, something I said on our, our unrecorded conversation that you just referenced earlier and it has to do with the pendulum swing. Um, you know what I said on that uh, earlier uh, conversation was that we do. You know, human history is a history of pendulum swings from one extreme to another, and and of course, different sub, subjects and areas constitute different pendulum swings. And I think that um, what we see on social media now uh, really is dumbed down. It is mean in the in the in the etymological sense of the word, which is kind of like base or low or you know average really but um just simply not rising to uh, a high level of of thinking of character of caring um but with that said maybe that pendulum swing is going to another direction i i do think that um that people are seeing the limits of of social you know the strengths and the limits of social media recognizing um the limitations of, of the technology, um, all technologies bring with them gifts, but they also take things away as Marshall McLuhan famously, um, discussed in his book, Understanding Media. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it, it's, I guess it's, it, it's, it's both and not either, or, um, I think that Twitter and other forms of social media are powerful. Um, I use them a lot. I use them too much. But I think if if we can be more intentional about the good they can do and the, the harm they can do, and I think more people are, I think maybe we can redeem them. Uh, and maybe we're on the maybe we're on the way. But, you know, I guess it depends on which day you ask me, because <laughs> because some days it's just really <laughs> terrible
0: out there. Well, you are um, a college professor. And so primarily you teach undergraduates. Is that is that correct?
1: Primarily, uh, yes. I do teach a couple of graduate courses. So as So
0: well. with undergraduates, obviously, we have this uh, vast millennial generation that has now passed you by in the academic square. And you're now dealing with Gen Z folks. Um, Are you noticing any strengths or or weaknesses that are unique to this idea for these two generations that are were born in a social media age who don't know anything different uh, is there things that we can learn from them and things perhaps that they could learn that you're experiencing in your interactions with them?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, most of my teaching experience is rooted in teaching the millennial generation, and I know people love to bash on the millennials, <laughs> um, but whatever, whatever weaknesses they have, I, you know, of course, is the, is, is the le, rest um, with the previous generation that raised them, right? So um, I think that the, what the millennials offered, it is both their strength and their weakness, is um, greater sensitivity, Um, And I mean that in both, I I do mean that in both a positive and negative sense. They get mocked for being snowflakes and this or that. Um, But, and I, you know, and I've had my concerns about their being overly sensitive and overly sheltered. Yet there is something I think that that sensitivity offers to all of us because we really do, we really are limited to our own perception and experience and understanding. And if we aren't willing to be, Sensitive to the experiences, perceptions, and understandings of other people, we never get out of our outside of ourselves. And the millennials have been really good at making way for that kind of sensitivity. Um, and that's something that they personally have have taught me, and that I I have greater understanding about. Um, the generation that's coming up, Generation Z, um, you know, I don't I don't know I I. I I um, I think the jury is still out about what, will, what how they will proceed in this age where it's very hard for them to be critical to say something, uh, you know, to stand up for their beliefs in a way uh, without the fear of getting shut down. That's a concern that I have. Um, they seem very, very naive.
0: Well well you mentioned something there about the fear of being shut down. I, I wonder if the, New moralism of our age is shame, um, and that we weaponize that mostly on social media, and that's why we're afraid to have strong opinions that might be controversial, because it almost seems like the instant somebody says something that's even mildly disagreeable or mildly wrong, we just right. we just attack. Um, and, and I want, and, and then shame kind of bubbles up in that. And we feel like, oh, I'm a bad person because I said that, or I believe that. And I wonder if that's at the root of that failure to stand for things.
1: I think that's very insightful. I mean, in a, in a way we have, we've returned to, you know, early American Puritan roots where public shaming was used as a form of social control and, and punishment, you know, Uh, Twitter has replaced kind of the, uh, I don't know what was the stocks, um, and, uh, and getting blocked or, or suspended is the, is the new scarlet letter, I guess. Um, but what we're talking about aren't, isn't the punishment of grave moral sins, but the punishment for trying out an idea or offering an opinion or, you know, just simply having a conversation, um, now everything you can't you can't try something out and, and wrestle with ideas without that being permanently on the record through you know through the digital media. So it's a very scary place to just kind of have a conversation and make a mistake and grow or learn. Um, so I think that there's going to be a kind of um, internal preemptive shutting down of expression um, just because the consequences. can can be so devastating you know
0: i wonder about going back to what you, we were talking about earlier about satire and meanness or whatever um, i wonder if robust satire that was thoughtful and cutting came from a place of respect for the other's idea that maybe that's part of what we're missing now. So because it it's almost as if if I disagree with someone, there's there's a certain tipping point where if I disagree with somebody, I can no longer respect them. So therefore, they must be shamed and silenced instead hmm. of saying I can disagree with a whole swath of people and still be dear friends with them and have really tough disagreements um, and, and walk away as brothers in arms in a sense, or even as respected enemies in a, in a sense. I wonder if we that's part of what we've lost.
1: Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think we have lost that. And I think there are a number of reasons why I think one is that um, it's part of the, definitional to the modern age and modernity that our individual identity is really important, more important than it was in in the pre-modern era. And so we tie our beliefs and views to our identity in such a way that to attack or just simply to disagree with someone's views or beliefs is an attack on their very identity in a way that's, you know, I think, relatively new to human history so that's one reason why we can't have this kinds of robust agreements without people taking them so personally um, now I do think that you know in fairness to those who might respond that way I think that um, if, that on both sides sometimes we have treated people as though, they are the sum total of their ideas and opinions and politics Mm. and, and dehumanize them in the process. There are lots of, you know, populations of people that I think would, would, would feel that that is how they have been treated. The other thing that's a little bit more kind of um, just nerdy, I guess (laughs) is that um, when we're talking about comedy of any kind in satire is a type of comedy, we're talking about, um, you know, all comedy, resides in the departure from an expected or agreed upon norm or standard. So the, simple, you know, the simplest example is you pull a chair out from someone and they sit down on the floor. That's funny because that's not what was supposed to happen. That's the basis of all comedy, including satire. But what that depends on, all comedy depends on a common understanding of what the norm or expectation is. And when we don't have that, we really can't have a comedy that unites us because we don't have the same agreed upon norms or expectations. We just have subcultures that have those, you know, the fragmenting and splintered subcultures find their own little brands of humor funny that no one else gets because we don't have that kind of common value and understanding and belief from which we can achieve a common source of humor and comedy it's really
0: interesting because i find that as a pastor now obviously comedy is not the core of what i i do <laughs> but it it's a piece of um, of oratory it's a piece of preaching um martin luther said he had a great list by the way of uh, tips for preachers and one was to have a ready wit and by the way another one was to be mm-hmm. to be mocked at and jeered at by everybody so um be mm. ready for, so those are two but but the idea of of Comedy, almost every week, if I make, and it's usually an off-the-cuff joke that I haven't really fully thought through, it just kind of comes to mind. Almost every time I do that, I get a note from somebody where their identity was wrapped up in where the joke was. And like you said, Mm. the deviation from norm it was a deviation from the norm of my experience in that exact moment where it's hitting a spot with them where it's really squishy and really part of the identity like you're saying earlier, uh, we tie our ideas to our identity and then if me as their pastor, I make a joke, all mm-hmm. of a sudden they feel like their identity is threatened. And I, I am, I'm really wrestling with how do you have mm-hmm. a ready wit in our culture mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't unnecessarily offend? Because I think, I I think my argument is, I think we should be people who necessarily offend, um, but then we should people, people Mm -hmm. who avoid unnecessarily offending.
1: Hmm. No, that's, that's, that's a very virtuous. You know, it's that moderation between the two extremes. And I also, you know, I think as you were speaking, I was thinking about how, um, how much our sense of humor depends on our ability to not take ourselves seriously. And I think, you know, to take our beliefs, especially as Christians, seriously, and take the gospel seriously, but ourselves less seriously. And I wonder how our inability to take ourselves seriously rests in our lack of security and confidence and um, being rooted in fear, because, because not taking yourself seriously requires a certain amount of confidence and security in who you are and what you believe. And I think the fragmentation of our culture and the the polarization and the political um, context all makes, you know, increases the fear and insecurity. And so people have a harder time not taking themselves seriously.
0: One of my co-pastors has talked the last year about one of the things that he thinks is happening a lot in our culture is that exact thing. He says we take ourselves way too seriously. And it impacts everything from how we sit down in a church service to how we select the car that we're driving to, when we decide to send the email or the tweet, it all comes from, we take everything so, so seriously that everything is life or death. And he Mm -hmm. said, he he sees that as one of our modern cultural plagues. Hmm. Wow.
1: Well, obviously he and I agree, so. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. obviously he's a, he's a
0: smart guy, clearly. Wow, wow. <laughs> so of course you're at Liberty University and I'm at Michigan State University, uh, both universities that ha- take a fair amount of fire in recent years um, over cultural issues. Um, have you noticed any difference between a Christian university and the times you're spending on secular universities like Michigan State or others?
1: Yeah, I think it's been a, a- providential gift in my life that I've had this experience of, of being educated myself entirely in secular contexts and especially in very liberal secular contexts, and then having my entire academic career in, you know, the complete opposite um, in a conservative evangelical um, community. And so by necessity, I've had to learn to understand, uh, you know, people who disagree with me and who, who have very different world views um, and to kind of bridge that gap. I mean, when I was at, um, at my state university working on my PhD, I was the only Christian that I knew of in the program, the only conservative. Um, and it was, it was quite a trying experience and um, it really solidified a lot of things in my own personal faith and faith commitment and understanding. Um, but I was viewed, you know, I was viewed there as kind of a freak um, and so I, you know, coming to the exact opposite kind of environment, um, you know, I think I, I don't, I fit in better here than I did in, in, my earlier institution, but I also, you know, I, there are some things that maybe I differ on with, with, um, institutionally and, and politically, although not as much as, as, as some <laughs> discernment bloggers would suggest. Um, but all of this has forced me to just be able to listen to others, to see things through their perspective without changing my own. I mean, I can, I can listen to and try to understand other people, and that doesn't mean that I have to change my own convictions, but it certainly can deepen my understanding and deepen my conviction Uh, And it makes me less afraid. It makes me more secure in my beliefs to be able to understand others while disagreeing. So
0: it's been commonly talked about the fact that we live in a culture right now where especially online, um, there's an echo chamber of sorts where uh, it's almost designed that way. It's uh, social media is designed to be an echo chamber where you hear more of the things that you already agree with. Um, What recommendation would you give to people who are finding themselves only listening to, only hearing like how do you their own viewpoints? How how do you begin to find credible sources to listen to of opposing viewpoints? Yeah, because with so much online, you just you could search for um, Christians who believe in you know sword swallowing as the way to salvation. You're going to find a group, <laughs> right? So I um, mean, how how do you? How do you begin to find credible people to listen to, to challenge your own ideas in order to be able to strengthen and bolster them or maybe get you to abandon them?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the best place to start is not so much on social media, but uh, reading, reading widely, and reading well, reading classic works of literature from people outside a Christian worldview, um, and then reading good journalism, um, you know, reading Uh, Places like The Atlantic, Um, full disclosure, I I write for The Atlantic from time to time, but The Atlantic is a truly classically liberal news site in the sense that they do uh, print a variety of perspectives from different points of view, including that of a conservative evangelical like me. And of course, more liberal perspectives. So I think just reading widely, reading um, promiscuously, as John Milton, uh, the Puritan poet, put it in uh, the 17th century, Christians more than any other people should be readers um, and should be exposing ourselves to different ideas so that we can be ready to make a defense for our faith. And then on social media, you know, find some of those more reasonable, good faith accounts that don't believe what you believe, but are intelligent and engaging and not dismissive of other points of view and and learn from them. Um, It's, it's, it's easy to do, but you have to be intentional about it because as you said, social media is designed to bring us the things that we already want and desire um, and to cultivate those tendencies in us and nothing works against virtue more than anything that takes us toward um, the tendencies and the impulses that we already have and that we already strengthen. We need to fight against that to find that moderation
0: um, where all virtue resides. There was a, um, a Chinese novelist who wrote a science fiction book called, I want to say it's called The Three-Body Problem or something like that. And he uh, It was, it's just a science fiction novel, but the way it communicated these science fiction themes were in ways that we as Western Americans wouldn't think. So it actually Hmm. communicated an Eastern worldview through Hmm. the fiction. It it was called The Three-Body Problem, I think. And uh, the first one was great. It was a trilogy, and then a different translator translated the second two, and it was not nearly as good. Um, but the first one was really good. If you were to make a quick recommendation to people about two or three books to read, other than "On Reading Well by Karen Swallow Pryor, um, (laughs) but two or three books that are good, challenging worldview style books, uh, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, what would you recommend that people would start with?
1: One of the my top recommendations for all Christians just to start thinking about the way media works and the way um, form changes the message is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a really important book. It's a little dated. He was writing in the age of television um, and doesn't address you know social media, but but it's it's got the situation's gotten far more worse, I think, than what he uh, predicted, and his his predictions were pretty dire. So that's a, a really important book, I think, in terms of fiction and literature, which is really my area. Um, if I had to recommend one work of literature along the lines of this conversation about worldview and and how that shapes us and changes our lives, um, it would be Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Um, it's, it's a book that, that critiques romanticism and a romantic worldview um, because its heroine, Emma Bovary, is a romantic and it leads her down a path, a self-destructive path. Yet at the same time, Flaubert, while critiquing romanticism, he found himself actually empathizing with the character that he wrote about and seeing the world through her eyes. Flaubert presents a, just a powerful Um, human picture as a writer and of what it means to both reject and understand a different worldview it's probably the novel that most changed my life um, and it's just it's a it's a fantastic read so that's my Other recommendation.
0: and I think we'll leave it with your reading recommendations, Karen. Thank you so much for jumping on again and recording this a second time. Um, And (laughs) and and for those of you um, who made it all the way to the end of this, here's what you know: we barely touched the stuff we talked about the first time, so that is just lost to uh, glory. Maybe there's some kind of eternal DVR where people will be able to watch that in glory. Karen, (laughs) thank you so much uh, for spending this time uh, with us. I'm so thankful for you. Uh, for your work there at Liberty, for your influence online, and to so many. You probably are influencing more people than you can imagine, and I suspect there will be people in glory who will thank you because somehow through your words and your tone, it has impacted someone who ends up sharing the gospel, with someone who ends up coming to Christ, and will thank you for that one day. So thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Noel. Okay, bye-bye. Everybody else, make sure that you check out Karen Swallow Pryor's stuff on Twitter. And uh, I've got links to the show notes to her books. Uh, her most recent book, On Reading Well, is a great challenge to not just be a reader, but to be a reader who reads well. And that's just something We have lost a bit in our culture, and I would challenge you to take her words seriously, read it, and then use that as a launching pad to read other great literature uh, that is out there in the world. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. As always, you can email me at podcast at com if you have any thoughts of any guests you'd like to have on the show or you just want to rant and rave about how much you loved or hated of the show. I'll, I'll read everything that you send in me, but I can't promise that I'll respond. But I will say that if you send me your mailing address before the end of September, um, I will send you a couple Wretched Saints stickers. That's from my most recent book, Wretched Saints, uh, just because I love you. And I got a bunch of stickers, and I want to send you one for free. So no charge. Just want to send you one. Just send me your, uh, your mailing address at podcast at recoveringhypocrite.com. All right. We'll see you soon.